Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could tune in. We're going to be talking about a pipeline that you may or may not have heard of. I mean, a lot of people who are into this kind of thing have heard about line three. Um, But if you have it, you are going to be a practically a subject matter expert by the time we finish with today's show. I'm excited to have Jenna Mastalone, the pipeline resistance organizer at Minnesota 350. They're an affiliate of 350.org. And she is going to help us understand um, all that we need to know to understand the fight that they've been in, um, to, to fight line three, what's happening now, and how the fight continues. So welcome to Go Green Radio, Jenna. We are so happy to have you. Thank you so much. Well, Jenna, I'd love to have you start by telling us where Line 3 is located. Help our listeners kind of understand the geography and the extent of the pipeline and some of the geography that it covers. Yeah, so I am currently located on Dakota, the ancestral homeland of the Dakota people um, in Minneapolis, Minnesota right now. But the Line 3 pipeline travels from Alberta, Canada, which is where the tar sand fields are located, um, all the way to Superior, Wisconsin, which is um, where the refinery is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Line 3 travels from, from Canada through, um, Minas- through um, the Dakotas, Wisconsin, uh, Minnesota, and Wisconsin, and also Canada. Um, but uh, the pipeline was completed, or the, this replacement pipeline, which we'll get into more, yeah. will, was completed um, in every other state and in Canada by 2017. Um, but in oh. Minnesota, um, it took un- um, until um, this past fall to be able mm-hmm. to complete it. And it runs in Minnesota um, across across northern Minnesota through the uh, the homelands of the Anishinaabeg people, uh, and yeah, I can talk a little bit more about about all that well, as well. Talk but to us about across northern the, the, Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, talk to us about the geography. Like, you know, this pipeline is running near aquifers, I guess, and some other sensitive geography. Um, give us some idea of what it touches. I mean, in terms of uh, native lands, wildlife, um, you know, mm-hmm. sensitive areas. Give us some idea of, of the geography of, of what it's touching. Yeah, so the, um, the New Line 3 cuts across um, really sensitive um, water sources, um, including uh, many wild rice beds, um, which is sacred food to the Anishinaabe people, um, and uh, it's one of the only places in the world where wild rice grows um, across northern Minnesota. Crosses the Mississippi River twice, um, which is where um, people, many people, get their drinking water, including all of the Twin Cities, get their drinking water from the Mississippi River, as well as crossing um, really, you know, important forest and other wildlife um, yeah, types of types of ecosystems. And yeah, northern Minnesota is really special, and there's a lot of a lot of great natural land that the pipeline has cut across. 
Yeah, I think you just said a mouthful when you said it cuts across the Mississippi River twice. There's a huge number of Americans that would care about that instantly um, Mm -hmm. when they hear that Line 3 cuts across that mighty river twice. That's a big deal. So let's kind of get some backstory on this pipeline. How long has Line 3 been in existence? Tell us a little bit about the pipeline's history. So the original Line 3... um began operating in 1968. So it's an old pipeline. Uh, And the new Line 3 has been in construction uh, for, for, as I said, at least uh, five-ish years. But this new Line 3 is a replacement project for the old Line 3. And so it was a, a 2014 beginning to this yeah. replacement project. Yeah, I was reading a little bit about the historic capacity of Line 3, and it was something like 800,000 barrels of oil a day at its peak. Um, And that's why it was such a, you know, such an important line to the folks who, who own it because it was moving a lot. There was a lot of tar sand oil and other, you know, liquids running through it. Um, and, And so that's, kind of what made it so significant. But talk to us, Jenna, about who owns the pipeline and, and a little bit about that company. Um, have they had any previous oil spills or problems that we should know about in terms of you know things that would make us trust them or maybe not? Yeah. So Line 3 is owned and operated by Enbridge Energy, which is a Canadian um, energy company. They operate many pipelines. And I personally don't trust them, and actually, they have been responsible for several oil spills over the course of their history of operation. Two ones to note are the Kalamazoo River oil spill, um, which was in Michigan over in July 2010, um, which was uh, one of the lar- it was one of the largest inland oil spills in U.S. history, um, and cleanup took over five years. But And then the other one I, I would want to mention is the 1991 oil spill um, in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, when the original Line 3 spilled, and that was actually the largest or worst inland oil spill in United States history thus far. So both Enbridge's responsibility um, and just two examples of the ways that this company has allowed oil to spill into people's, to, to people's water uh, over the course of their existence. Wow. So, okay, we've got a company that's, it's a, it's a foreign company. It's a Canadian company running pipeline through the United States over some of our, uh, our tribal lands, but also some of the waterways that provide millions of people with their drinking water. Um, and they have a previous history of significant um, and very damaging spills. Hmm. That, what could possibly go wrong? Am I right, Jenna? <laughs> um, so, you know, these kinds of projects need regulation. And so, uh, you know, I'd love to hear more about, especially in Minnesota, because uh, this is where you've been working. Um, uh, who regulates Line 3? What government body or bodies are responsible for overseeing the pipeline's compliance with applicable laws? 
So um, in the permitting process and approval process for line threes, for the new line threes, so, you know, they had to ask all these different states if they could build this new pipeline. And the body in Minnesota is our Public Utilities Commission, which is our energy regulatory body, is was responsible for approving the big permits for line three to be built, and uh, as well as other government agencies like the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency, which is our like environmental regulatory body, um, mm-hmm. as well as uh, offices like our Department of Natural Resources. Right, right. And, and it seems like in a lot of the news that I was reading about Line 3, the Minnesota Public Utilities Commission was one of the main bodies, at least recently, that was, you know, that, that was in the middle of all of the permitting that that had to be done. When it comes to the Public Utilities Commission, what are some of the laws? um, And I guess it doesn't have to be just the Public Utilities Committee uh, or Commission. It could be even federal laws. But what are some of the laws that Line 3 must comply with in order to be permitted? Yeah. um, Yeah. I'm not a lawyer. So, you know, I'm not an environmental lawyer. And there's lots of really wonderful lawyers who are working on this, um, who probably could say this a lot more eloquently than I could. But so the PUC, Public Utilities Commission, Mm -hmm. granted uh, Enbridge a route permit, a certificate of need, and an environmental impact, um, basically, permit, um, all all saying that this pipeline was, was needed, was necessary, that the route selected was the least harmful, um, and that it was um, the you know least environmentally impactful that it could be, um, and they uh, had a lot of ways that they were supposed to be complying with uh, environmental regulatory law in Minnesota over the course of the permitting process and construction, and while the pipeline is operational. Um, and you know, I'll just say that the Public Utilities Commission's approval of these permits was in was a matter of great debate even within um, the state. So the former governor, uh, Governor Dayton's own uh, Department of Commerce, um, appealed one of the Public Utilities Commission's permit approvals, the, the certificate of need, um, because they didn't feel like it was adequate. And so the the ways that, and uh, along with a lot of other parties uh, in, in many appeals, so they're there was a lot of ways that the interests of Enbridge um, were put above the interests of the state and um, above the laws that were that they were expected to comply with over the course of their their permitting, construction, and operational process. Because there were even the the government that was also a part of the PUC is part yeah. of the government, and so is yeah. the Department of Commerce. But um, they they disagreed about how the PUC wow. permitted um, the pipeline and. Yeah. Uh, Wow, I that's could, that's pretty amazing. PUC, but I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to let you because we want to hear more about this, but we've got to take a quick commercial break. So thank you, Jenna. Just hold right there. And to all of our listeners, we're going to be right back after this commercial break. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could join us. If you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Jenna Mastalone, and she is with Minnesota's affiliate of 350.org, MN350. You can check them out at MN350.org. They have quite a bit going on to include a campaign uh, to stop Line 3. We're talking about Line 3. It's a major, very long pipeline running from the Canadian tar sands uh, through several U.S. states um, to include Minnesota. And Minnesota, you know, they they got feisty there. Uh, It took a lot longer to get Line 3 through Minnesota, and we're finding out why. Uh, Jenna has been the pipeline resistance coordinator for MN350, so we are getting it from the from the source of the opposition. So, Jenna, back to, to Line 3, let's talk about what precipitated replacing Line 3. What was wrong with it? So, um, you know, as I said before, the original Line 3 has been in existence since 1968. It's old, and, you know, the older a pipeline is, the more susceptible it is to structural anomalies. It leaks and spills, and so Enbridge announced that they wanted to build a replacement pipeline because citing those concerns. But what's important to remember is that because this new Line 3 is a completely new route, it has an expanded capacity uh, beyond what the old Line 3 had, we, we consider this to be a completely a new pipeline. And so Enbridge kind of got away with saying, oh, well, we're just replacing an old, deformed, cracking pipeline. Don't, you don't want that. So and said, well, that, so we need to build a new pipeline to to fix all those problems. And for for me and for others, I think as well, that's not that's a disingenuous way for them to have approached this because it's a completely new pipeline. And you know, of course, I don't want an old and corroded and cracking pipeline to be leaking across the state. 
but the decommissioning of, of the old Line 3 in no way requires there to be a new pipeline unless you're Enbridge and you're concerned about your bottom line and, and making money off of the tar sands. And so uh, that is, you know, it's, it's, it's a new pipeline that they really played into our, you know, our fears of what, the old, what might happen to the old Line 3 to, to get approval to, to replace it. I see. I see. That makes perfect sense. And, and I can understand why uh, the folks in Minnesota would say, hey, this is a brand new pipeline, especially if it has a different route. So talk to us about, besides uh, the Minnesota affiliate of 350.org, which you're part of, who else objected to the replacement of Line 3? Talk to us, Jenna, about some of the partners you've been working with and give us kind of an overview of those various groups' objections to Line 3. Yeah, so they're, um, a lot, they're the, the opposition is vast, but there are uh, a lot of climate groups in Minnesota besides MN350, the, the North Star chapter of the Sierra Club, um, Honor the Earth, the Youth Climate Interveners, uh, lots of different um, environmental groups um, have opposed the pipeline, um, as well as several bands of uh, the Ojibwe people in, in northern Minnesota and the the White Earth, Red Lake, Malax, Fond du Lac, and Leech Lake bands have all opposed the pipelines at, at various points in its proposal and um, construction. And in fact, the White Earth and Red Lake bands were part of the appeal of the Public Utilities Commission's Certificate of Need, along with a couple of other climate um, parties, as well as Malax, Whiters, and Red Lake were part of the appeals of the PUC's environmental impact statement, and as well as the Minnesota Department of Commerce, which I mentioned before, was part of the appeal of the PUC's certificate of need. So a really, a really wide range of opposition um, mm-hmm. from across the movement. You know, and it's one thing to coalesce, you know, in, in the same vein, you know, we're all against line three, but I would imagine that some of those groups had different reasons for opposing mm-hmm. Line 3. Tell us more about, you know, some of the reasons that different groups objected. Yeah. So the, the climate is a big one. Um, a lot of the climate-focused groups were able to, to get deeply involved on climate grounds because just not only the risks that you get from building a new pipeline, the, the deforestation, the threats to water, the threats to air pollution... Also, the, the pipeline being operational contributes to, uh, it, it, it signals a commitment to fossil fuel infrastructure for, you know, another 30 to 50 years. And that is not the direction that we need to be going in. And so, you know, even, even objections over the, the way that the pipeline would be constructed or objections to Enbridge aside, this is a brand new tar sands pipeline, which is some of the dirtiest fossil fuels out there. And we're basically saying as a state and as a country, like we commit to utilizing this energy Mm. as well. And then some other objections include, you know, uh, especially the objections that are coming from the, from the tribes around treaty rights, um, which, you know, I can, uh, I can talk about a little bit more in depth, but that the, they, that the pipeline is crossing, uh, crossing reservation land and treaty land and the, and is going to impact people, uh, these people's ability to utilize their land to the extent that they are permitted to do so. 
and you know their rights to have clean water, uh, places to hunt, places to fish, and access to wild rice, as well as the increase in drug and sex trafficking that always comes with these types of infrastructure projects that are really devastating to Native communities and Native women and Two-Spirit individuals in particular. When a lot of construction workers flood a place, um, build temporary places to stay and are given a large amount of money for their work and not much Mm -hmm. else going on in the area uh, for entertainment, there's a really high increase in sex and drug trafficking um, Mm -hmm. that uh, occurs. And so that's, that was just another really big reason that folks were opposed um, to the construction. And then just, you know, to say, yeah, oil spills, we don't like Enbridge uh, and their potential for oil spills. (laughs) Yeah. That, I mean, and I've, been to Minnesota many times. I'm originally from Illinois, and it's such a beautiful state that even just the the concern about oil spills alone um, is enough to really, really, I'm sure, bring out a lot of opposition. Now, help me understand how it's legal that the state of Minnesota could allow a Canadian company to impede on tribal lands. I mean, aren't there treaties that prevent action like that? So there are treaties. We often refer to the 1854 and 1855 treaties most often, but there are are, um, many treaties um, in place between the Anishinaabe and uh, the federal government. So uh, tribes are sovereign nations, so they can only make uh, agreements with other sovereign nations, not the state. So not the state of Minnesota itself, but between these nations and the federal government are are the parties to these treaties. But um, Enbridge had to ask all of the tribes um, to do this, basically, and originally proposed a route that cut through several of these bands, um, reservation land, and um, at the end of the construction and at the, the final route that was decided on, it does, the pipeline does go through the Fond du Lac Reservation and a little bit of the Leech Lake Reservation. Those were decisions that were made by those, um, those governments, uh, you know, and under really challenging circumstances. Um, mm-hmm. But even for the tribes that did not sign agreements with Enbridge or, or um, cho- you know, were able to make other decisions, the land that the pipeline goes through, even if it is not their specifically designated reservation land, it goes through ceded treaty territory, mm-hmm. um, which, uh, you know, the Enbridge did not technically, like, need their special permission to to cut through. Um, but, you know, this protected land um, is how, uh, it, sorry, the language within the treaties states that um, the Anishinaabe have um, usurfructory rights, which is um, the rights to use on this, on this treaty land um, oh. to hunt, fish, and gather. Um, and so the land that the pipeline is going through even it is still tr- ceded treaty territory and where people should have the ability to have clean rivers and forests and wild rice beds to, to, to gather and use. Um, and so a lot of objections um, from tribes came on the basis of their ability to utilize um, the, the land in their ceded, ceded treaty territory. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the expectation, even in the ceded lands, if that's where they're going to be hunting or, you know, um, getting fresh water, things like that, even even if it's seeded lands, but you have that expectation of using it. I mean, the, the kind of wildlife and and pollution disruption that could happen to those seeded lands, um, you know, it's <laughs> that's that's really unfortunate. And I can totally understand where, you know, some of that 
um, some of that consternation would come from because the construction of a pipeline, the maintenance of a pipeline, that's going to disrupt all of that. Um, and and how many how many tribal you know organizations did you work with, Jenna? I mean, I'm sure there were several. Yeah, and I wasn't um, I was not around as much at the very beginning of the fight. I started um, organizing in 2018, so after a lot of these initial uh, communications were happening, uh, a lot of permitting com- uh, processes were starting. But we, yeah, we continue to work with either individuals from all of these um, different tribes or with the the tribes themselves, and particularly with the White Earth and Red Lake um, nations who um, have really held strong in court and who have been partners um, in in different aspects of the proceedings. And in fact, uh, the White Earth, uh, the tribal attorney for the White Earth Nation, uh, Frank Thibault, is currently leading on a a rights of nature lawsuit um, uh, on behalf of Monoman, which is wild rice, um, to, you know, to say that the the Monoman uh, has a right to speak for themselves in court um, and to be able to fight for their rights as well. Um, So a lot of innovative legal strategy coming out of these tribes as well. Oh, that's that's really exciting to hear. And we're going to keep an eye on that. We're going to be taking a quick commercial break in just a minute. But when we come back, we're going to ask Jenna to talk to us about what she experienced, what she saw, what she heard on the front lines of this fight. There were many, many protests. There were many, many um episodes of of confrontation and and protest and and a lot of arrests that came out of this fight so we're going to talk to jenna about what it was like being on the front line so don't go away folks there's much more go green radio right after this your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could be with us because we're talking about something that's very important. Uh, It's a very long, very um, uh, dirty pipeline. (laughs) Line three that comes out of the Canadian tar sands brings some of the most dirty and harmful oil product that you could possibly send through a pipeline from the Canadian tar sands and through several United States states. And Minnesota is one that has really pushed back and said, you know what? We don't want it. Um, We have some very fragile wildlife and water systems and tribal lands that we don't want it. Now, we're going to be talking with Jenna Mastalone, who's been with us uh, throughout the show. And she was on the front lines of the fight. Jenna, I would love to have you talk to us about what it was like uh, being there at the protests. Tell us what you saw. Tell us what you witnessed. Yeah, I just to quickly, um, I misspoke earlier, so I just want to correct myself. Um, I said that the new line ran through the Leech Lake Reservation, um, and it does not. Uh, the old line runs through Leech Lake. So gotcha. apologies for no misspeaking. Worries. But yeah, to the you know, construction began on line three um, about a year ago, exactly, December of 2020. And it, it finished up this past fall and people were out fighting basically every day um, for those, you know, 10 months. And uh, I was, you know, I was there sometimes, but want to make sure to say that like a lot of people, you know, packed up their whole lives, moved to the front lines, moved to resistance camp, were fighting alongside uh, Indigenous-led groups like the GNU Collective, like Camp McGeezy, Red Lake Treaty Camp, and other organizations and groups that were um, really building infrastructure to to fight Line 3 on, on the front lines day in and day out. And I can say, you know, I was a participant in, in protests and also helped uh, to uh, p- uh, put together the Treaty People Gathering in this past June, which was one of the largest mobilizations we had uh, against Line 3. We had over 2,000 people from across the country gather on the White Earth Nation to learn about treaties, to learn about what it means to engage in, in action and, and treaty-based action and, and to, to, take, to, to participate in action uh, against the pipeline. Um, and it was just a really wonderful mobilization and to see so many people come together. Two different actions came out of that um, event that really, really were really beautiful and powerful and got a lot of people engaged in the fight and, and a lot of those folks stuck around. So it was a really um, beautiful thing to, to see. You know, I saw a lot of photos of people getting arrested um, through these protests and during the course of being along the pipeline construction route. What can you tell us about, about that? Uh, yeah, over uh, there have been over a thousand arrests over the course of the past year, um, a lot of people were were taken into custody or um, arrested uh, for standing up for for the water and for the land and for trees. And it was, you know, the northern Minnesota law enforcement uh, were really, really prepared to intervene in uh, this in, in, in this fight. Uh, I've been talking about the Public Utilities Commission a lot, but they keep coming up because 
the Public Utilities Commission set up an escrow fund, basically, to hold money um, between Enbridge, the company, and uh, Northern Minnesota law enforcement agencies, different departments, because uh, law enforcement agencies felt like they were going to need a lot of money to buy a lot of supplies and gear to to fight the, the very scary protesters. And so the state of Minnesota basically acted as a pass-through for between law enforcement and Enbridge um, to facilitate the repression of protesters. So there was a lot of a lot of a lot of violence against water protectors and crackdowns on people um, exercising their rights, as well as and, and a lot of that, you know, is uh, indirectly facilitated by mm-hmm. Minnesota, uh, the state of Minnesota. Gotcha. Now I want to shift to the federal level because. President Biden's administration had an opportunity to weigh in on line three, and I'd like for you to talk to us about what they decided to do. Yeah, so, you know, President Biden was elected just as construction was starting, which was a really interesting opportunity for us to to finally shift um, some of the fight from the state level to the federal level, because during the Trump administration, um, it was didn't feel like there was really much of an opportunity to get in, to get a word in um, about line three um, on a federal level. And so the biggest thing that the Biden administration can do and that they can still do right now, even though the pipeline has been completed, is to direct their Army Corps of Engineers, which is a federal level agency that oversees a lot of infrastructure, to conduct a federal environmental impact statement on line three, there was a state level of, uh, environmental impact statement that was done, required by the PUC, that did not take climate change into account effectively. In fact, that state level EIS was appealed and granted by the Minnesota State Supreme Court and new uh, in, in fall of 2019. We got a new EIS done on the grounds of uh, questions about uh, oil spills in the, in the Lake Superior area. Um, but the point is, is that the Trump administration declined to issue a federal environmental impact statement and simply said that the state level one, Minnesota state level one, was good enough uh, to, to continue on with the project. And so there's been no federal environmental impact statement done on the project, which the Biden administration could tomorrow call up the Army Corps um, and, and do. But they have thus far declined to take that step mm. and have have not weighed in really in any meaningful way on, on the line three pipeline, despite their, their climate commitment and despite mm-hmm. their action on the Keystone XL pipeline and their clear um, interest in the line five pipeline in Michigan and listening to the governor there's concerns about line five, which is also an Enbridge pipeline. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, it really feels like a politically motivated lack of um, engagement. There. What do you mean by that, Jenna? You know, what what would be the politics around this? You know, what would what would be the political, um, you know, the, the the reason behind this lack of action? So, you know, I, I'm sure many of you and your listeners have seen the headlines recently that like federal uh, leasing for uh, oil and gas drilling has like increased under President Biden, you know, in recent years and mm-hmm. uh, has increased recently. Um, and so, you know, the this administration has came in saying that they were going to do something about the climate crisis, but they don't seem to want to stand up to the fossil fuel industry or um, engage in any way that we really need to to actually stop relying um, on fossil fuels and to make meaningful shifts away from it and to not invest in new fossil fuel infrastructure 
Um, and and then another aspect of that, just to say, is that um, the Democratic governor of Minnesota, Tim Walz, um, has been a proponent of Line 3 basically the entire way, um, has not done very much uh, to, to intervene and has declined uh, at many steps to do so. And so um, I think that there is a lack of political will on the federal um, on, on, a, on a federal part to engage um, to take action against the will of a democratic governor who is, you know, also behaving in politically opportunistic ways, in my opinion. So it's uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just say that. Well, it's interesting, Jenna, because a lot of times it's so easy to say, well, this is a partisan issue, you know, that it's uh, the Republicans are all for oil and the Democrats are not. And it's really not that cut and dry. Um, it's never been that cut and dry. And so politics is, is you know, something that we all have to keep an eye on. And we can't take for granted that any governing party is going to have all the answers that we want. And that's why it's important to remain vigilant in our advocacy, no matter who is elected or not elected. And so I think that's an important point that you just made. Now, because the new route of Line 3 is so different uh, than its historic route, there's a lot of old pipeline still in the ground that's no longer going to be in use. Is the company going to remove that? And if they're not, what are the risks? So um, this is something that, again, a lot of people who are very smart, uh, smarter than me, are monitoring closely. But basically, Enbridge has said they are going to decommission um, Line 3, the old Line 3, which means removing oil from it, cleaning it, disconnecting it from pump stations and things like that. Um, But it does not include removing it from the ground um, and that they don't necessarily think that that is the right thing to do, which is to remove it from the ground, um, at least for now. Um, and they are, yeah, the, the process of how and what they're going to do for the old line three is something that is, is still unfolding and that a lot of folks are, are watching closely. So what is happening right now with line three? Is it flowing? What's the latest news? So it is flowing. Um, they, uh, in early October, announced that oil would be flowing through it. Um, and, you know, there are still people fighting Line 3, still monitoring it. Um, there have, in fact, been three confirmed aquifer breaches of the new Line 3 um, since mm. it began. Um, and it's not clear that Enbridge is taking any of the necessary steps um, to prevent things like that from happening. Um, it's been mostly citizen science um, and, and people um, who have been uh, breaking the news around uh, whether but when, when things seem to be not going well um, with this new line three. Um, so they're still not, they, they are, they're not following the law right now, even um, as even in the first few months of the pipelines uh, wow. operation. Um, and uh, there is, uh, one ongoing federal lawsuit that is still in play um, that is um, we are waiting to hear. So it's, it's not a, over. A, 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 yeah, another appeal that we are still waiting for the results of, Thanks, which will Jenna. come sometime this winter. Well, there's there's still a lot to do. Uh, as somebody who's fighting the good fight, there's still a lot to do. Well, we're going to take a quick commercial break, folks, but we'll be right back with more Go Green Radio right after this. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information, about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Jenna, let's hop right in and talk about how Line 3 plays a role in climate change. You know, you talked about this earlier when you spoke about the reliance on fossil fuels and and a commitment to fossil fuel infrastructure going forward by virtue of approving this new pipeline. Talk to us a little bit about the greenhouse gas emissions that are associated with this pipeline. Uh, What does it mean to have Line 3 (laughs) <laughs> going through the, so many states during the era of climate change? Um, so the emissions associated with the Line 3 pipeline are, uh, are equivalent to that of uh, 50 coal-fired power plants, um, which is a, a pretty jarring statistic that I think can, can speak for itself. But basically, um, the climate impacts of, of this project is that of 50 coal-fired power plants. Um, yeah. That's quite a bit. Um, So how could climate action plans that are happening, I mean, they're happening at the city level, county level, state level, of course, the national level. How could some of those climate action plans and legislation that's beginning to actually be enforced impact line three in the future? Well, I would hope that a lot of any uh, climate action plans um, are taking steps to wean us off um, of, of new building new fossil fuel infrastructure and especially of reliance on um, on such heavy crude oil like tar sands. And so from a financial perspective, even, you know, building this pipeline doesn't make a ton of sense for a company like Enbridge because the tar sands industry is on its way out um, and they know it. I think they, they're just trying to get this done and break even as much as possible before they really can't build any new tar sands pipelines based on markets and um, legislation. Um, and so, you know, line three is kind of, it's like a, a last ditch hobby horse for Enbridge more than it is um, the energy future that we're looking towards. Right, right. You know, I noticed that on MN350's website, which is MN350.org, your organization has several other campaigns that you're working on. And I'd love to give you a chance to take a few minutes and tell us about some of those campaigns. 
Yeah, um, we have uh, a lot of different work that's going on. Um, uh, we have a pain transportation uh, campaign that's focusing on both um, transit um, and transit justice, as well as um, electrification of vehicles. Um, we have a um, policy action team that works on um, uh, legislation um, and different things at the state level. Um, we also have, um, uh, we're affiliated with Bemidji 350. Um, we have staff who are working on Bemidji 350 and focusing on northern Minnesota and on um, our treaty work and uh, the, the ways that we can all be treaty people um, as we move towards a just future. And those are just a few of the, the places that we're working. Yeah, just a quick question on that, Jenna, because um, transit justice is it's a term that's just kind of beginning to make it into the mainstream lexicon. Can you tell us more about what transit justice means? Sure. Um, just that uh, uh, for everyone to have access to affordable and clean um, and safe um, ways to get from point A to point B that is focused on their well-being, um, on their safety, um, on not polluting them and their families more, um, and uh, that is equitably distributed across uh, across space. Gotcha. Well, that's a that's a great campaign to be involved in. Now, how can climate conscious voters in Minnesota get involved with your organization? How do they do that? Yeah, um, a lot of our different teams meet pretty regularly, um, and you can always go to mn350.org and, um, you know, email different staff members. Uh, we also have a, um, a event web, uh, like event calendar where you can check out which meetings are, are coming up and can uh, sign up to get involved there. Um, and we do sometimes have welcome events, which will be um, listed on that calendar as well. Gotcha. Gotcha. And and folks can go to mn350.org and check out the campaigns. There's a get involved button. There's ways to volunteer. You can sign up for newsletters, stay in the know. Uh, it's a very good website and it's very easy to navigate. Jenna, I'm going to ask you to kind of look into your crystal ball and maybe share your New Year's resolutions a couple of weeks early. What are your environmental and climate goals for 2022, both as an individual and as a team member with MN350? Yeah, um, I yeah, I hope that we can continue to to fight for um, for good uh, for a just transition in the state of Minnesota um, and across the state. We also have a Green New Deal team. I forgot to mention that who are working on, on that um, within the cities um, as well. Um, and really, you know, working cohesively as an organization um, to be advancing climate justice, um, to continue to both be on the offensive, you know, trying to, to really create um, the world we want to see and also um, to be continuing to push back on, against companies like Enbridge um, who want to continue to expand within the state. Yep. Very good. Now, Jenna, many of our listeners are young adults, just like you, who are still very early in their career. A lot of them are wondering, how do I get a green job? How do I get paid to do the kind of things that Jenna's doing? That is so awesome. So I'd love for you to take a minute to speak directly to them. What advice do you have um, for them and all of those young adults who would like to work in the field just like you do? Yeah, this is going to sound like uh, not that helpful advice, but uh, get into it without looking for a job. Um, so I, I worked at M350 because I was a volunteer for a few years on the team, and then they needed help. 
Um, and so often, you know, I think identifying what you're excited about when it comes to, to climate work um, in whatever way it is and, and just start seeing what organizing and what other, um, what's happening in your area around there and just start, you know, ask if you can volunteer, ask if you can get involved, meet other people um, because so much of, so much of doing good work in the world is, is about relationships and, and uh, learning what you're good at. And so I think you just, once you start getting involved, you keep meeting other people who are involved um, and then opportunities can flow from there. What, what did you do? If you don't mind me asking, you know, what got you connected with this? Cause sometimes young people look at these issues that they want to get involved in. And there are so many websites that they come up with when they Google fighting climate change, you know, how did you decide that MN350 was where you wanted to volunteer, where you wanted to work? Give us some idea of your, of the judgment process you went through to find the right place for you. Um, I moved to Minnesota in uh, fall of 2018 um, for a variety of personal reasons. Um, I'm not from the Midwest, I'm not from here. And um, I, got involved because I knew that about the line three fight, I had heard of it and it felt like a really specific and tangible and like, um, important moment to, to be involved. So I just looked at who was doing that kind of work around me, um, and set up a one-on-one with an organizer and, uh, started going to meetings from there. So just because it felt I could, I could, you know, I think there's, there's fossil fuel infrastructure and land based, um, and indigenous led fights like happening all over the country. And so, Really finding out where where the people are fighting the most urgent fights around you, I think, can That's be awesome. can be a great way to start. That's awesome, Jenna. What a great what a great story, and what a great piece of advice um, for all of our listeners who are thinking about doing what you're doing and just trying to figure out how to make it work. So thanks for that. So in the final moments that we have left in the show, Jenna, what parting thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners, whether it's about line three, it's about climate change, it's about anything at all. What parting thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners? Um, I think, you know, just that every pipeline fight takes us into another place. And so it's not necessarily about winning or losing on line three, although I certainly would like to win. Um, but you know, so many of the people who fight line three or fought line three came out of the Dakota Access Pipeline fight and, and learned from that and, and built community from that. And so all of our fights are connected. Um, and if you're interested in fighting, fighting pipelines or fighting fossil fuel infrastructure, there's so much rich movement history to, to build on and um, new places where we can all, all go together. Well, thank you for that, Jenna. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.